It's good to see uh, half of your faces, um, as usual. I feel like uh, I, don't, I don't usually come up here to talk about myself and my family, but you are owed a small update. Uh, and I actually want to invite you to pray with us. So I'm not going to say too much, but Liesl and I yesterday visited a house, and we put in an application to live there. And our prayer, and the prayer I invite you to join me with, is, Jesus, if this is the house for us, make it a yes. And if it's not, make it a quick no. Uh, and just allow, we are allowing Jesus to make the final decision for us about this place. But um, it's, um, we have a sense of peace about it. Um, a, a few weeks ago, I joked, I don't think I joked with any of you like out public, but I joked with Lisa and I joked with a few people. I said, somewhere right now, Jesus is giving somebody a promotion. And they are being moved out. And uh, we walked into this house, and they had many of the books that we have. Uh, it was a Christian family. And as we were walking out, the father was saying to the letting agent, she said something about like, oh, you, you know, you're probably getting a better job and some stuff. And he said, no, God is on the move. <laughs> I thought, oh. So anyway, it's a great story if it works. And if it's not, Jesus has a better story to tell. And that's the hope. So please join us in prayer um, as we try to hear God's will um, these next weeks about a place to live. So uh, we come now to the first kind of proper Bible teaching that I get to lead us through as a church, and we are going to look together at the book of 1 John. So why 1 John? Well, um, there was a desire to have a book of the Bible in this season, just to spend some time in the scriptures in a sustained way, and for the next 10 weeks, that's what we're going to do. When we, um, when as, as pastors discern what kind of book, usually there's a really strong sense of kind of where we are as a community and where we're going and what's happening. And um, your goal as a pastor is to try and pair um, the word in season, the word that we need to hear with the word coming out of the scriptures. So we want to have that kind of, um, that kind of unity. And I just simply haven't had enough time to get to know you all well enough to be able to pick this easily. It was quite challenging to pick the book of the Bible. So I had a night where I sat down and I read through the book of James, and then I read through the whole book of Philippians, and then I read through Ephesians and Ecclesiastes and 1 Thessalonians and 1 Peter, and none of them was right. I didn't have a sense of being right about any of them. And finally landed on 1 John and had a deep sense of peace about it. Not sure why, but had peace in my spirit that this is the space we were supposed to be in. So at the time, at that time when I first picked it, I didn't know why we were supposed to study 1 John. I really didn't. Uh, and then I sat with our team, I sat with Dave and Paul and Brendan, and we worked through the book, and I had time to kind of read through it. And as I began to study, I began to feel more and more that it is the right book for us in this season of our church life. And as I've prepared this sermon, I feel more convinced of it than ever. I'm just excited about what we have to do with 1 John together. So for the next 10 weeks, we're going to work through 1 John. Uh, I want to encourage you all to read 1 John on your own sometime this week. It'll take you less than 30 minutes. There's only five chapters. It's really short, just a few pages of the Bible. Uh, what we're going to do today is I'm going to give you an overview of the book and a kind of study of its main themes. This will be perhaps a little bit of an info dump. So you'll get lots of content. Uh, and we'll sort through it, but hopefully the main themes will become pretty clear. One more thing before I get going is that you'll notice if you came in, you may have received some paper sermon notes, um, and I think I'd promised you guys that I was going to hand some of these out, um, and the ushers have them, and if you didn't get one, you can go grab one or they'll be up. It'll be a mirror of what's appearing on the screen behind me. Ushers are now 
scrambling to fulfill my will. That was kind of fun. Um, uh, I want to talk to you about notes for just a second because there's a bit of a story to tell before we get going. I used to think um, that the, a good sermon, a really good sermon, is one where I held you in like rapt attention for the entire time I spoke, right? Like you were mesmerized. And I didn't want to give notes because I thought notes are distractions from me doing my really good work. If I do the good job of sermon preaching, then you know, you're with me the whole time. And so I was, in, I was preaching, and a young woman was in our church, in my church, and she came up to me after the service, and we were talking, and she wasn't a believer, and I said, do you like coming to church? And she says, I do, I really do. And she, says, she said, but sometimes I have a hard time following the sermons. Now, I don't often hear the audible voice of God, but he spoke to me in that moment, and he said, Jeremy, will you keep this young woman from hearing about me because you have some stupid idea about what the sermon should be? And I was immediately and suitably humbled and realized it's not about me. It's about making access for her. And so from that time on, I tried to give sermon notes. And in the process, my idea of the sermon fundamentally changed. Instead of you being enwrapped the whole time, I realized that the most important thing that happens in a sermon is when Jesus starts doing something in you and I lose you completely. That's when the real work is going on where you're thinking thoughts and Jesus is leading you in those thoughts. And that means my job is to make sure you can get back on the bus after you've had a little Jesus detour. And so I give out notes so you can find an easy way back onto where we're going, okay? So that's it. They're simple, they're not complex. Uh, you can use them however you like. If you choose to use them for drawing, like if you draw pictures, like maybe of a, of a tortoise riding a dragon while wielding a lightsaber, that's awesome, but I'd like to see it. Um, <laughs> because that's a lot more fun. Okay, so uh, there's no test. It's just for you, and it's just a way that I've learned. Um, I've had to learn to be obedient in this. So let's talk about First John, and the place for us to begin now is with the question of authorship. So the question is, who wrote First John? Well, we believe it's John, one of the 12 apostles. He's the brother of James, and they get the nickname the Sons of Thunder. What does that mean? What does it mean to be called the son of thunder? Uh, some people think it means they had tempers, right? They were fighty, um, and that's possible. Uh, I want to point out that almost everybody in Jesus' circle got a nickname. Simon Petros, right? The rock. Thomas Didymus means twin. Simon Zealot means, you know, political zealot. And then the sons of thunder. I think we should rename them Rocky, Twin, Patriot, and Thunderboy. Um, in fact, if the disciples were to form a band, I think it would be called Rocky and the Thunderboys which sounds like a great band to me. So wonderfully then, in John's gospel, there's kind of a further nickname we get, and John is referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is really quite remarkable uh, to talk about this kind of friendship and intimacy and relationship that set him apart from the other 12. I think that's interesting. So here in 1 John, we're dealing with the John who wrote John's gospel, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the book of Revelation, a sizable chunk of our New Testament. Now, as an aside, I should mention that some scholars think there may have been more than one John in the early church. Names got reused. There's more than one Mary. There's more than one Judas, right? And you think maybe that Judas changed, the good Judas changed his name after the, <laughs> who knows? There's more than one Judas, and there appears to be multiple Johns. There's John the Baptist, who, of course, dies before the Gospels are written. But some scholars think there's a John the Younger and a John the Elder, and they are responsible for different parts of the Johannine corpus, as it's called. For my money, and on my read of the text over the years, I think it's just one guy. 
I think there's just one John who's responsible for all five of these books in the New Testament. And I'm going to treat it that way throughout, but you don't have to agree with me on that. That's fine. Traditionally, John is the youngest of the apostles. He's the youngest. And we've got some reasons for thinking this. One of them is that he's the last person to die. Of all the apostles, he dies last. He's also the only person who does not die violently. All the others are executed in some form or another, and John is the only one to die of old age. We think he's the youngest also because his gospel appears to have been written last of the four. Mark is clearly the first, and Luke and Matthew copied Mark's homework. It's pretty obvious they were looking over Mark's shoulder and they used large sections of it to build their Gospels. John's has a very different feel. It looks like there's a lot of time between these events and he's reflecting on them in a different way. Uh, Because of this, John is sometimes reviewed as someone having a bird's eye perspective. And in church tradition, John is often represented as an eagle because he's so high up looking over the events. Um, It's one of the images associated with John in the tradition. Uh, This also accounts for some of the differences between John's gospel and the other three. John's is a bit more theological, a bit more reflective than the others. It looks like we're getting, you know, hard events with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but we're getting a kind of, like, theological reflection on the life of Jesus in John. Uh, And this is one of the things that seems to characterize him. As you may know, he was exiled late in life on an island called Patmos, and that's where he wrote the book of Revelation. But traditionally, John finishes his life and ministry at Ephesus. And this connects him with Paul in some weird ways, although there's no mentions of them together in the Bible explicitly. Uh, it likely means, because he was at Ephesus, that he had a discipling role for Onesimus, the slave. Onesimus is the subject of the book Philemon, remember? Philemon had a runaway slave, and Paul, sent Philemon, sent, Paul sends Onesimus, the runaway slave, back to Philemon. He says, I'm returning your property, but I'm also returning a brother, because in the process, uh, Phi, uh, Onesimus has become a Christian. And if you didn't know, Onesimus goes from becoming a slave to being bishop in Ephesus at the end of this. So the slave becomes governor of the church in the city. But that means if John is there, that John probably had a discipling role on Onesimus. Other mentions in the ancient world are found in in the writings of Polycarp, who is the early bishop of Smyrna. He describes himself as discipled by the elder John. So I think it's interesting as an aside that none of the apostles, none of the apostles became bishops of churches. Do you think this is interesting? Wouldn't you think the early bishops would all be these apostles, but they're not. And it looks like what they're doing is they're doing the apostle thing. They're traveling around encouraging, and they're raising up bishops. Um, They have a different kind of role. And I think we see in John something of this encouraging, oversight, fatherly role in the people connected with him. So one more thing about John personally and I think, or maybe two more things about John. So this young man, called the beloved by Jesus, the discipler of others, he's in the upper room, and this is John chapter 13, verses 21 to 25. I'll have the scripture up on the screen in a second. No, that's not it. We'll go back to the scripture, please. So John, it says, is the one reclining at Jesus' side. John 13, 21 to 25. I'll read it for you, and maybe we'll get back. Oh, perfect. So when Jesus had said this, he's talking about the betrayal, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you, that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which he was speaking. There was reclining at Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, so this is John, whom Jesus loved, that's how we know it's John. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. And he, John, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Interesting moment. 
Disciple Jesus Love, Reclining on Jesus' Bosom, and I just want to take you through some pictures for a second. So the first is the most familiar picture you have of the Last Supper. It's, uh, this is a kind of touched-up version of da Vinci's Last Supper. Fun fact is that in the room where this, this mural was originally made, it was a dining hall, and there were three other tables. There's a table here, a table back there, and a table here. So Jesus and the apostles make up the fourth table in a rectangle. Okay, which explains partially why the distortion of the windows is the way it is. It mirrors the room in which this was originally made. So if you've seen the Da Vinci Code, it's nothing to do with Dan Brown's stupidity and everything to do with good architecture. So uh, you're familiar with this, and maybe you're familiar with this. So uh, next to Jesus is this young-faced, unbearded person, uh, John, looking a little more feminine in terms of they're probably, they've bought the Da Vinci Code Kool-Aid, so don't do that. Um, but um, again, John unbearded because younger, you know, not old enough to have a beard, the youngest of the apostles, there's an idea. But this, it probably wasn't table fellowship like this because in the ancient world, people didn't eat sitting at table. They ate laying down. Okay, so next picture. Uh, this is a, an image from a tomb, a fourth century tomb uh, in, I think, Santa Constanza is the name of it. And you can see that people are kind of like, they're kind of leaning on their sides, right? They're kind of sideways. And the Romans felt like your digestion was improved by being sideways. Um, the, the food went better this way. And so they're reaching in. And so you have to kind of change the picture of what's going on with Jesus and John. So that John, essentially, if um, this is a tomb, I think this is meant to be a kind of a Last Supper picture. Um, it's the Roman influence that removes the beards. Uh, beards are too Middle Eastern. So the Romans like, like bare-faced people for their heroes. And so they kind of... Uh, it's projecting ourselves onto the Christian story as an old story uh, in this way. Okay, and then we get one more picture, a bit more romanticized. Their beards all look like my beard, I want to point out. Um, and so um, and now we have this table, and we have them all leaning in, and it's a bit sentimental or romanticized, but perhaps it's a little bit better as a picture. And again, we have uh, right next to Jesus is someone most likely John, and that means that John was leaning, reclining in a way where Peter could say, hey, ask Jesus, and he could lean in and ask Jesus a quiet question because he was right at Jesus' chest in these moments, okay? And so there's something very, very close between John. John has an unparalleled intimacy with Jesus not shared by the other apostles. It's pretty interesting that he has this closeness. And this intimacy, so intimacy shows up in one more way. So let's look now at John chapter 19, verses 25b and 27. This is Jesus on the cross, um, from the cross, speaking to John. He says, But standing by the cross were, of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleopas, Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, again John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. This is one of the most tender moments in the Bible. Perhaps it's unclear to you what's going on. But in that moment, here's the bare-faced again, John with no beard, and probably Mary wearing blue. You can always tell Mary because she's wearing blue. Um, in that moment, Jesus says, Woman, behold your son, son, behold this. And he's, he's giving the care of his mother to John. He's saying, John, would you look after my mom? And so John takes on Mary as his care. Jesus is head of the household at this point. And to think that while he's dying, he's thinking, who will look after my mom when I'm gone? It's really tender, isn't it? And so John is given this really special role. It also means that when, we, uh, when you study Ephesians, and if we study it later, that very likely both Mary and John are in the congregation. 
um, as eyewitnesses to the events of Jesus. Pretty powerful stuff. So I think this stuff's great because it all ties together, kind of how the Bible story gets together. But this leads us then uh, to a question of audience, okay? Next set of questions is, uh, who was the audience of 1 John? Who's he writing to? Well, a letter is almost always written to a specific group at a specific time for a specific purpose. So who's the target audience of this particular writing? We'll take a moment to talk about letter writing. Uh, so first thing to say is something about letters in the ancient world. Well, letters are always read aloud. Um, no New Testament letter is a private communication. It's always meant to be read aloud to the community. So when, uh, when, for example, Paul writes to Timothy and says something to Timothy like, don't, look at, don't let anyone look down on you because of your youth, it, it's meant to be read aloud. It's Paul speaking aloud to the congregation through the letter. It's not private encouragement for Timothy. It's a public word for Timothy's congregation. In other words, don't look down on Timothy because of his youth is the implication. It's all read aloud. Letters are almost always a surrogate for the person. So essentially, when Paul sends a letter, it carries all the authority of Paul's person. When we hear Paul's writing, it's Paul speaking uh, when it's read aloud. So whoever reads the letter aloud is the surrogate body for the person. Therefore, if this is a letter from John, then we are to hear these words as if John is physically, personally, spiritually with us in the letter. The letter is a replacement for the person in a very real way. Uh, so a strong idea of what letters do. But this leads to another question. Is this even really a letter or is it maybe a sermon? Um, letters typically have like a formal greeting followed by a declaration of addressees and a clear occasion. I, Paul, write to you, Gaius, to encourage your faith. Person writing, person of receiving the letter, purpose of the letter kind of goes bit by bit. We don't see that here. And so that's a bit odd. However, however, John, as a rule, seems singularly unconcerned for classic forms. He just doesn't care. Uh, and his gospel is brilliant literature, but it doesn't conform to any other kind of classic form and how it's built. And so John is, John's doing his own thing. In fact, John's writing gives strong evidence of Greek being his second language. His really simple stuff. He probably speaks Aramaic first. He's probably learned Greek second. In other words, he's a GSL student. Okay, And now his... His public writings, although brilliant, display some of the awkwardnesses in Greek prose that aren't present others. So he just doesn't know the forms, possibly. And with this in mind, 2 John and 3 John are more clearly letters. So what we might have here may be an unconventional letter, or it might be a sermon repurposed as a letter, and in some ways we may never know. We may just simply never know, but I'm going to refer to it as a letter throughout, because I think that simplifies things. So... Is there any evidence in the letter for the audience? Who are the recipients of this letter? Uh, and it's helpful to remember that a letter like this is always one half of a conversation. So Gordon Fee, who was one of my instructors at Regent, used to tell a story about how he was sitting at his table. He and his wife were sitting, and his daughter received a phone call. And he and his wife listened to one half of the conversation. And the whole time they sat there and thought, who is she talking to? And they couldn't make sense of it. And finally, one piece dropped in place, and they realized she was talking to... He never said who it was. She's talking to some friend from some place. And the moment they knew who the other person was, the whole conversation made sense. All the pieces fell in place. Oh, that's why she's talking about this and this and this. And the audience makes sense of sometimes of the content. And similarly, um, this is called mirror reading. We can deduce some evidence of the contents of the letter from what it might have been going on with its recipients. There's a few small things we can detect. So there's three of them I'll just highlight for right now. One of them is that this is clearly a church audience. He's writing to the church. He's not non-believers. It's not kind of a wild group. He's writing specifically 
to a church. There appears to be, second, some conflict. When you get to the, in chapter 2, and um, he deals with things like, fathers, I speak to you, sons, I speak to you, fathers, I speak to you, sons, I speak to you. It sounds like there may be some kind of generational conflict in the church, and John's trying to reconcile those conflicts to make sense of it. And third, there are some thoroughgoing concerns regarding a number of things, like doctrine, teachers, the devil, and idols, things that are uh, dangerous, and John's eager to address those different things. There is no immediately clear set of issues for 1 John except a thoroughgoing love for the church. Running throughout this is a deep sense that John really loves the church, and, and all the concerns come from that space of deep love. So let's turn then to the argument of 1 John. What is its argument? What's going on? On the surface, I want to be perfectly honest, it's unclear. In some ways, a hodgepodge. The Scots would call it a dish of orts, which is just scraps and leftovers, things that don't quite fit together. But as you read through the book, I think you'll notice, especially hopefully as you read this week, you'll notice a number of key words and repeated phrases like light, community, confession, fathers and sons, teachers, the world, the devil, the love of God, the blood of Christ, conquering and overcoming. A series of phrases that seem to run persistently. Now, in one view, there are times when First John feels a bit like a loving grandmother, and her grandkids have showed up, and then she's just emptied her fridge of everything good inside it, right? And so there's a bit of like leftover chicken and some meatloaf and some garden vegetables, but also like half a pie, um, and maybe some cookies and things, and some crackers, and some home-baked bread, and it's all put on the table, and there's really nothing that unifies the table except that Grandma loves you, and she made it all, and it's all good. And I think in one view, John is unified by the love he has for the church, and it's just evident that there's this paternal love for the people, and all the teachings are unified by that love. And yet, I think there is indeed a cohesion to the book that I want to try and tease out for you in, uh, for the rest of our time right now. So I'd like us to look at two passages. The first is the, one of the opening passages of John, and the second is from the end of John. And I think you'll see similarities between the two. So 1 John 1, 1 through 4, the first four verses, John writes, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you may have fellowship too, may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. So there's the opening words, but here's one of the final paragraphs, which is very similar. John 5, 1 John 5, 13 to 15. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. I'll try these together a little better for you in a moment. But for right now, I want to point out that from these first verses, from John 1, 1 through 4, John identifies himself as a witness to the events of Jesus' life. We knew this. The closeness of John, what we've seen and touched and heard. He's reclining on Jesus' chest. He's really close to the Lord. He's looking after his mom. Like, we are insiders. He's about as insider as you can get to this story. And that with that, he is an authority. He's an authoritative voice. 
I think it's worth just mentioning that for the early church, these letters that are being passed around scattered throughout the community were eyewitnesses to the events of what was going on. If you showed up as a teacher and you said something that was contrary to the eyewitnesses, there were people in the room who said, I was there, I saw it, that's not how it went. These, the early books were controlled by people who had seen what had happened, like John. We've seen it, we've touched it, we've heard it, we testified to you. Okay? So there's a really powerful strain of the eyewitnesses going on. And yet, John writes with a very specific goal. So let's look just at one verse, 1 John 1, 4. All right? And here's what he says. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Now, obviously, I've put in bold and underlined that word, our, so that we're all focused on that. That's good. I also accented it with my voice, our joy may be made complete. I think it's worth reflecting. He doesn't say that my joy may be made complete. In other words, I'll be happy when you've got things sorted out. Or your joy may be made complete, so that your happiness is something independent of mine. And I actually think that this humble pronoun, our, may be an anchor and key to the whole book. Not John's self-satisfaction, not your joy as if what happened immaterial uh, to me, but our joy, the sense that my happiness is wrapped up in yours, that your happiness is wrapped up in mine. Now, this is the language of spiritual fatherhood to spiritual children. Those of you who are parents will know this. I'll pick on my kids right now. When they're happy, I'm happy. And there's a real shared happiness between us in these things. Last night, I made fettuccine Alfredo for my kids And when I told my sons I was doing it, they said, yay! And I thought, great. But I'm happy because they ate food that made me happy. My happiness is tied up with their happiness. It did make me happy, all right? This way, he's good, good. My son's happy about this too, right? When your kids suffer, you suffer. There is between parents and children a blending of happinesses. And John evokes this blending in his service to the family of faith. Our joy. He feels this fatherly love for the church. Our joy may be made complete. Now, as the book progresses throughout its chapters, John articulates this shared joy in three ways. And I've I've picked this as an icon of Jesus and John. And again, John, barefaced, right? You can always kind of tell who he is. And he's got his head hanging out on Jesus' chest. That's kind of where we want to be, I think, hanging out with Jesus. And that's the invitation John offers us. We'll get back to that. So, uh, this shared joy gets articulated in three ways. So, first... It is a joy that is anchored in Christ. The joy John wants us to have is a joy anchored in Christ. Uh, Again, these opening words are so informative. 1 John 1, 1 to 3. And I'm just going to read them again because they're so important. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father was manifested to us What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The joy he wants to share with you is anchored in this person of Jesus. Jesus, who's been made known to John, and John wants Jesus to be known to us so that we too may have this fellowship with him and with Christ and with the Father. So the starting point and the ending point of our joy is the person of Christ. He makes it possible, and in knowing him, we experience it. So what brings us into this joy? I'll bring a few highlights that I think come out of the book. I won't go text by text, and I won't give you a ton of references, but let's talk about this for a second. One of these joys is the joy of forgiveness. 
The joy of knowing that because of Christ's blood, we have been forgiven of our sins. There's joy in that. There's rejoicing in that. There is joy for John in speaking the truth, of confessing that Christ is Lord, that we need him, and that he meets us in our need. There's real joy in speaking the truth, and there's despair in living lies. And John wants us to have the joy of truth speaking in the presence of Jesus. There is joy for John in restored relationships. When we live out that forgiveness practically, and it transforms our families and friendships. When mothers and daughters and fathers and sons, when they reconcile because of the forgiveness of Jesus, there's such joy. That's a joy that should be made manifest in us. Our joy complete, John says. And there's a joy of knowing who we are in the world. We're children of God. We know who we are. Oh, what joy to have that sense of knowledge for who we are. And there is ultimately the joy of knowing the love of God, knowing God who is love. Wow, all these things are joyful things. And they're the, they're the subject headings um, for many of the sermons we're going to go through in the subsequent weeks. This joy of this love. So all of this, of course, is anchored in the work of Christ to which John testifies on our behalf. John wants you to know Jesus so that you can know that joy with him. That's what he wants. So a second articulation of joy is this. It's a joy that manifests in answered prayer. A joy that manifests itself in answered prayer. And this is the end of the letter where John circles back to the language of the beginning, perhaps offering a real practical reason for the writing of the book. Once again, John, 1 John 5, 13 to 15. John writes, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Get it? I want you to believe. Now you who believe, here's what I've written to you, so that you may know that you have eternal life, which is a joyful thing. Verse 14, this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. In other words, I want you to get this stuff sorted out, and I want you to know this joy, and our joy is complete when Jesus hears your prayers. No obstructions between your prayers and our king. It's a pretty cool offer. So being forgiven, being sons and daughters of God, living as God's children of the world and being filled with the Spirit, all of this means that we get to pray with some special confidence. Special confidence in our prayers. We don't pray our wishes. Prayer is not wish fulfillment or wish, wish depositing. Our prayers are not like lucky money hurled at the beings of bribable attentiveness. Pay enough and maybe I'll look at you. That's not how it works. We do not pray to a mysterious and unknown being, someone or something clouded in an unapproachable darkness. That's not how we pray either. We don't pray to a fickle and unreliable being, someone whose goodness is uncertain or his intentions are unknown. It's not that we're, we can't, oh, I'm not really sure if God's good or not. That's not the kind of prayer we have. We pray knowing that we are beloved children, forgiven children, children who belong to God. And from such a posture, our prayers take on power. And that's why we get to say, Abba, Father. Appeal to God as a father. And what father who loves his children denies them any good thing he has in his power to give? This is the promise that Jesus gives us in the Scriptures. In fact, the whole discussion of sin in 1 John, and there are lots of discussions of sin, it appears to be framed in light of having our prayers heard. 
I want to be super clear about this. Getting rid of sin isn't about trying to impress God. We get rid of sin because once we've learned how wonderful it is, why would we willingly put anything between us? Some of you have large TVs in your homes, and you like to watch them. In fact, you like watching the hockey on them. Who of you, knowing you have a large and enjoyable hockey match coming up, would willingly paint over your screen? Why would you obscure something that you want to enjoy? Or some of you like your husbands or wives. Some of you do, I know, right? Not all of you. That was a joke. Okay? If you knew you were going on a date with that person later tonight, would you willingly antagonize them before the date? <laughs> Knowing that it would poison the good things you have. And in the same way, sin is the stuff that comes between us and God. Why would we willingly cloud the goodness of the love of God? Why would we do that? And so we get rid of this stuff because it stands in the way of us being, having this joyful intimacy with our God. And I think we have to understand sin as the thing that just stands between us and God. And I want rid of it because I want to be close to God. Not because I want to earn God's favor, because I'm not certain if he loves me or if I've got to do these things. It's just I'm doing my part. I'm doing my part to make sure that, um, that this is right. We should be, let me put it this way, we should be as eager to remove sin from our lives as we would to remove a misunderstanding between ourselves and a close and valued friend. If you've got a close friend and there's some kind of misunderstanding, you're going to work so hard to fix the misunderstanding. Because I, I value the friendship more than I value the understanding. I want it to be right. And that's how it works, I think. Third and finally, third manifestation, articulation of joy is that it is a joy that centers on abiding. A joy that centers on abiding. Now, broadly speaking, there is a development of this book along three themes that I can detect, and I'm going to crash course this way for a moment. The opening section of 1 John focuses on issues of light and confession. That's kind of the ongoing theme. The middle section of the book shifts into the language of abiding, and the closing section turns to love or agape. And these three movements capture the heart of the book, and I want to take a moment to highlight these three movements now. So first, we have the language of light or of confession. John stresses in the opening chapter the importance of coming into the light of Christ, of confessing the truth about Christ, and the confession is what initiates us into Christ's community. I'm going to talk about this extended, in an extended way next week. From that confession, next, John moves, uh, moves into this language of abiding in Christ's love. And I want to pause here to mention that the word abide is a central, maybe the central word to the entire letter. So beginning in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 6, he starts to use this language of abide. The word in Greek is meno. Um, that's, that's what it looks like up there on the screen. It means remain or live or dwell or inhabit or abide. The language increases as the book progresses. Uh, the word occurs some 24 times by my count in Greek. Uh, interestingly, fun if you like the maths, you'll enjoy this. There's 120 occurrences of the word in the Greek New Testament. 69 of them are in John's writings. So way more than half are found just in John's books. And that's um, of those 69, 24 in this tiny book. So, so one in six occurrences of the word abide occurs in these five pages of our New Testament, um, which is pretty high frequency of this stuff. So we shift from confessing 
Christ and abiding in Christ. And in the middle section of the letter, John outlines a variety of ways that we can be drawn out of the abiding love of God by means of broken relationships or bad teachers or the corruption of the world or refusal to admit when we are wrong or refusal to care for our brothers and sisters in faith. And I think when you understand that abiding is the ongoing concern, you realize that John is talking about things that take us out of the abiding love of God. And he's rebuking them because they have the risk of pulling us out of our intimacy with God. And with this in mind, here's what John's doing. Far from being a hodgepodge, the letter starts to make a lot of sense when we realize that John is attempting to safeguard our abiding. He's trying to put up walls of protection around our indwelling, our inhabiting, our being close to the life of Jesus. Having entered into the life of Christ, what is required to keep us there? And for first, John generates a kind of list He says things like enmity with our brothers and sisters in faith will pull us away. The allure of the world will pull us away. False teachers will pull us away. Each of these things will take us out of their intimacy with Christ, and so they must be avoided. And then, at the end of the book, in the third section, John shifts at the close from the language of abiding into the language of love, of agape. And the pattern of the whole book begins to look like this. We confess, which brings us into relationship with Christ. We abide, rejecting those things that keep us from Christ. And in Christ, we experience agape, which is the holy and intimate love of God. But there is perhaps one more interesting thing at stake here. Not just interesting, fascinating thing. And on my read, a passage like 1 John 4 12 to 15 are probably the central verses for the whole book. So let me read them for you now. John writes, No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. Now, I want you to recall that in the very opening words of 1 John, we read them twice this morning, John had declared that he, with his own eyes, had seen something, Christ, of course, in the flesh. Now, that same word for John saying what we have seen is used here for the fact that no one has ever seen God. So we have seen, John says in John 1.1, and here in John 4, he says no one has ever seen God. And I think the light of the message becomes kind of clear, which is when we abide in love, the unseen God becomes visible. I think that's the heart of this. When we abide in love, the unseen God becomes visible. God whom no one ever gets to see. God whose sight of which is destructive in many ways. When we abide in love, God becomes visible in us. Now, I think this is pretty cool because we've just come off a series of epiphanies about encounters with Jesus. And behold... John shows us precisely how to make God known in our world by abiding in love. If we want to be a place of epiphanies, abide in love, folks. That's it. And invite that spirit to be present and we do the things John asks us to do. And God who is unseen becomes manifest to our world and in our midst. And I will tell you, no one's ever here. Well, to pick that up again... Grateful, Dave. Uh, This is, without reservation, what I want for us at NSA. I want 
us to be a place where the, this presence of God is so powerfully manifest. And let's clarify, I don't mean in our sermons, and I don't mean in our worship, and I don't mean in our programs, but in our community. It's us as people who are living the life that God called us to live that God becomes manifest. That's where it happens. And I want newcomers to walk into our door and say, today I have experienced God. That's what I want. And that's what we're going to aim for in this series on 1 John. And I'm personally really excited now about these next weeks. John, the apostle who leaned against Jesus' side, invites you to abide alongside him. This is an invitation to an unparalleled intimacy with our Lord. And this book contains a simple roadmap to finding that intimacy. Confess, abide, love. And this is the roadmap we'll survey together as we journey towards Easter. So brothers and sisters, may we become a fit place for the Spirit of God, the Father, to rest upon us in power through the sacrifice and mercy of our Lord and King, Jesus Christ. Amen.